This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost Episode 5 A few weeks ago, we offered up a special treat, a recording of our first ever live Word of the Week performance. It'll be a long time before we do that again, as our researcher clearly doesn't understand the concept of a live performance. We apologize for his repeated interruptions. We ended that episode, a discussion of the history of dragons, by noting that there were far too many stories about dragons to fit into a single performance. Though we might have been able to fit in a few more if we hadn't been interrupted every few minutes. And maybe we can make up for that now. We do have a tradition here at the Word of the Week of compiling the bits we had to cut out of previous episodes due to time constraints into what we have taken to calling Lost Episodes. So welcome to our Lost Episode, number five, Dragon Tales. Let's begin with a beast that technically isn't a dragon, but which we name drop nonetheless because it appears to be one of the earliest fire-breathing monsters in the world, though that depends heavily on which translation you read. The beast is also notable because it comes from what is widely recognized as the earliest work of recorded literature in human history. That's right, we're talking about Hunbaba from the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a mythical story about a real historical person. Gilgamesh was a Sumerian king who ruled the city-state of Uruk in 2700 BCE. But he was worshipped by the Sumerians for many ages after his death. And by many other cultures as well. Gilgamesh was a popular figure in Babylonian folklore for hundreds of years. And many, many stories were told about the great warrior king in many different languages. The most complete collection of the tales of Gilgamesh was compiled for Assurbanipal, the last king of the Assyrian Empire before it was conquered by the Persians in 612 BCE. The Persians laid waste to the city of Nineveh and destroyed the royal library. And after the Persian conquest, Gilgamesh was mostly forgotten. The oldest tales of Gilgamesh, however, came from a collection of a dozen or so stone tablets of varying ages that were discovered in the 1850s. The oldest of those tablets was first inscribed in around 2100 BCE, and that is why the Epic of Gilgamesh is considered to be the oldest recorded work of literature on Earth. And the story told in those tablets is actually a pretty cool tale of a wise but selfish king who learns about the power of friendship and discovers that being renowned is more valuable than living forever. The story begins in the city of Uruk. Uruk was pretty much the greatest city in Mesopotamia. At least back in 2600 BCE it was. It was huge and it was protected by massive walls that dwarfed all of the other cities around it. Estimates suggest that at its height, it had between 50 and 100,000 residents and covered two square miles. And the city was the pride of its king, the demigod Gilgamesh. According to myth, Gilgamesh was two-thirds god and one-third mortal. We're not sure how that was measured, but it doesn't matter. What does matter was that by virtue of his partial divinity, Gilgamesh was the strongest and most powerful warrior in the world at least until the gods created some competition. See, Gilgamesh wasn't the worst king in the world. 
but he did have some bad habits. Gilgamesh liked the ladies. A lot. And as the king, he claimed that it was his right to join every married couple on their honeymoon. And we don't mean join as in marry them. And while we don't want to get too graphic, we have to be clear about what Gilgamesh meant. He meant that he got to have the first turn in the bed in the honeymoon suite with the bride, if you take our meaning. But that's not all. Gilgamesh was also into sports. Almost as much as he was into the ladies, he was pretty much the world's first jock. As a result, he kept the able-bodied men of Uruk engaged in constant contests of strength and sport and skill. And they were frankly exhausted by it. So the people of Uruk cried out to the gods for help, and the gods responded by creating someone powerful enough to threaten Gilgamesh. They created a wild, savage, hairy man named Enkidu. Enkidu lives in the wilds, runs with the animals, and beats up hunters and trappers for fun. When Gilgamesh hears about Enkidu, he realizes that Enkidu just needs to calm down a bit. So he hires a prostitute named Shamhat to go where Enkidu down a bit. After a week of lovemaking and a good shave and a bath, Shamhat cleans up Enkidu and makes a civilized man out of him. A few weeks later, the lovely couple is attending a wedding in Uruk when Gilgamesh shows up to demand his... right. And Enkidu blocks his path. The two of them have a massive fight. Eventually, Gilgamesh wins, and Enkidu admits he's stronger. But Gilgamesh is too worn down to go on the honeymoon. And after that, Gilgamesh gave up on the whole first right thing. And he and Enkidu become bros. Apparently, all Gilgamesh needed was a good fight and a good buddy to crack a few brewskis with. Eventually, the pair get bored with palace life, watching sports and drinking beer, and they decide a quest is just what a pair of super-powerful warrior dudes need. They hear about this massive monster called Hunbaba, who lives in the cedar forest beyond the mountains at the end of the world. And they decide to head off and kill the thing. Because it's a monster! Along the trip, they hear a lot of stories about how terrible Hunbaba is. He has the claws of a lion. His body is covered in multiple invincible spiked hides. He has the horns of a bull. His tail and phallus are made of snakes, and his breath is made of fire. And Gilgamesh keeps having nightmares about being crushed under mountains and being burned alive and about his buddy Enkidu being suspiciously still and cold in bed. And Enkidu insists these are all good omens. Somehow. The pair reaches the cedar forest and confronts Hunbaba. For some reason, Hunbaba is only wearing one of his seven invincible skins. And the sun god, Shamash, sends 13 magic winds to paralyze Hunbaba. And the pair manages to beat Hunbaba, whereupon the vicious monster starts begging for its life. And that's because... Baba wasn't actually a bad monster. He was a guardian. Enlil, the king of the gods, created him to guard the forest. And considering we're talking about the Middle East here, there weren't a hell of a lot of forests to guard. 
so it probably needed a guardian. Hanbaba starts to win Gilgamesh over, but suddenly Enkidu appeals to his buddy to just kill the monster. Gilgamesh does, and Humbaba curses Enkidu with his dying breath. And that's pretty much the end of Humbaba. He was just a guardian monster with fiery breath after all. The story continues though. Enkidu dies, spoiler alert, and Gilgamesh becomes obsessed with immortality. He goes on two different quests to achieve everlasting life and manages to screw both of them up. Dejected and defeated, he returns to Uruk. And when he sees the walls of the city, the walls he built, he realizes that he had immortality all along. His body might die, but his name will be remembered forever. Or at least for 2,000 years until Persians go all Fahrenheit 451 on the Assyrian King's Library. The End Now, Hunbaba was the first fire-breather in mythology, but he wasn't the last. Greek mythology included several fire-breathing beasts. There was the Chimera, of course, and Typhon, the hundred-headed serpent monster who lives under volcanic Mount Etna. And there was even a fire-breathing cow named Cacus, who guarded the cattle herd of Geryon. But we discussed Greek mythology enough in our live episode. What we didn't discuss in any sort of detail was the serpentine Naga of Hindu mythology. And that means we have to discuss the Mahabharata, another very old work that incorporates both history and spirituality. The Mahabharata is one of the two great epic poems of ancient India, the other being the Ramayana, and it is an extremely important work. The most complete compilation appeared in 400 CE, but the poem reveals a great deal about the development of Hinduism and the history of India during the period from about 500 BCE to 200 CE. The Mahabharata is a massive work. It consists of 100,000 couplets or pairs of line. It contains 1.8 million words. And it's seven times longer than both of the Greek epics combined, the Odyssey and the Iliad. But, although it is often credited to the sage Vyasa, it is unlikely that the epic was written by any one person. The central plot of the Mahabharata tells the tale of the kingdom of Bharata in north-central India along the sacred Ganges River. And it begins with two princes, Dhritarashtra and Pandu. Dhritarashtra was the old prince, but he was blind. And so Pandu is proclaimed king. Unfortunately, Pandu has been cursed and is unable to bear children. His wife appeals to the gods, and the gods ultimately father five children in Pandu's name. The five cousins, fathered by different deities, are jealous of each other, and their bickering and infighting becomes so severe that they must be exiled. And during the twelve-year exile, the Dhritarashtra clan, the Kaurava, are able to gain power. During their exile, the five Pandvas, the sons of Pandu, have several adventures, and they meet their cousin Krishna. And Krishna is the real main character of the Mahabharata. Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu. Specifically, he's the eighth incarnation of the god Vishnu, born into human form. And he is related both to the Pandavas and the Kauravas. 
Krishna joins the Pandavas. On their return from exile, the Pandavas go to war with the Kaurava, and the war is protracted, bloody, and brutal. And ultimately, the Pandavas are victorious. But the Mahabharata is more than just the story of a war. Indeed, the actual main plot, the events leading up to the Great War, and the war itself, the main plot only encompasses about a fifth of the entire epic. There are a great many subplots woven throughout the epic with many characters pursuing their own agendas. And many of those subplots involve complex social and ethical dilemmas. Meanwhile, Krishna delivers numerous lessons about Dharma, the Hindu moral code. And the complexities of the code are such that sometimes there is no right answer. One must sometimes choose the lesser evil because good is simply not a choice. The Mahabharata also contains extensive collections of Hindu myths and legends that are completely unrelated to the main text of the story. And these myths and legends allow scholars to trace the evolution of the Hindu faith from its Vedic origins. As such, the Mahabharata is considered the most important text about Hinduism after the Vedas, the actual scriptures of Hinduism. It's in these myths and legends that the Naga come up. The Naga are supernatural beings, half human and half serpent. They originally dwell in the sea, but soon overran the lands of earth as well. When they became too numerous, the deity Brahma sent them below ground to the kingdom of Naga Ioka, wherein they carved great palaces ornamented with precious gems. They were forbidden from attacking mortals, save for the truly evil, or those who were destined to die already. Naga are capable of assuming both human and serpent forms, and as such they are more similar to the Yuan-Ti of Dungeons and Dragons than they are to dragons, or even to the Naga from Dungeons and Dragons. But there are many legends about the Naga, and they have changed over time. The Mahabharata offers a decidedly negative picture of the serpent folk. In various places in the epic they are depicted as vicious hunters intent on biting and killing everyone and everything. But despite this, some Naga in the epic do serve the side of good. Brahma is even so impressed with one Naga, Shesha, that he is entrusted with carrying the world on his head. That said, a great deal of time is also spent discussing the enmity between the Naga and the great eagle deity Garuda. Garuda is a massive bird-like creature with a golden body, white face, and red wings, and is sometimes depicted as the mount of the deity Lord Vishnu. And Garuda is revered as a protector and healer, especially of poison. But Garuda is also the half-brother to 1,000 Nagas. And those Nagas nearly got him into trouble with the gods. Oh, and they also enslaved him and his mother. And Garuda has never let the grudge go. The story begins with the two wives of a great sage. Kadru prayed to the gods to bless her with many children. Vinata prayed to the gods to bless her with a powerful child. And both wishes were granted. Kadru gave birth to 1,000 serpents, and her brood went on to become the ancestors of every snake and serpent in the world. Vinata, meanwhile, gave birth to the super-eagle Garuda. Sometime later, Kadru and Vinata were arguing about the color of the tail of a legendary seven-headed winged horse. Ultimately, they made a bet. Kadru bet that the color was black, and Vinata bet the color was white. 
Hadru sent her thousand serpent kids to bite the tail of the horse, and their poison turned its white tail black. Thus, Kadru won, and Vinata and Garuda were enslaved. Yeah, they weren't just betting for free beers, they bet enslavement. Because the tail color of a magical scepter horse is that serious. Garuda, as you might expect, chafed at the enslavement. He grew to hate his thousand serpent half-brothers. After many years of cruel mistreatment and growing resentment, he finally demanded that he and his mother be set free. The serpents agreed to let Garuda buy his freedom. All he needed to do was steal the nectar of immortality from the god Indra and give it to the serpents. Garuda did so and won his freedom, but he also tricked his serpent siblings so they never got to actually drink the stuff. And Garuda himself also resisted the temptation and refused to drink of the nectar. Vishnu was so impressed by Garuda's integrity that Vishnu protected him from Indra's wrath. And that's how Garuda came to serve Vishnu, and also why he hates all serpents and snakes and nagas, and why eagles eat snakes. Speaking of mythical serpents, we also briefly mention Quetzalcoatl, the well-known feathered serpent god of Aztec mythology, who was also known as Kukulkan by the Mayans. Quetzalcoatl is an interesting figure, not just for his mythology, but for how his mythology may also serve as a historical record of the people who worshipped him. Quetzalcoatl appears in Mesoamerican mythology as far back as the 3rd century CE, the feathered snake was depicted as a supernatural being of earth and water and a servant of the rain god Tlalk. Eventually, he became the prominent deity of the Toltec people, and he became associated with the planet Venus, or, as the Toltec saw it, the morning and evening star. One of the most important stories about Quetzalcoatl is his exile at the hands of the god of the night, Tezcatlipoca. In this myth... Quetzalcoatl was the priest-king of the city of Tula, the capital of the Toltec Empire, and he refused to offer the gods human sacrifices. He only offered snakes, birds, and butterflies. Otherwise, he was wise and peaceful. Tezcatlipoca was offended by Quetzalcoatl's demeanor and used black magic to turn the people of Tula against him. Quetzalcoatl was driven from Tula and made his way down the coast of the Great Sea. In one version of the story, he finally burned himself on the eastern shore and was reborn as the planet Venus. Thereafter, he became associated with death and rebirth. According to another legend, Quetzalcoatl built a great raft and sailed across the eastern sea, disappearing over the horizon. Some scholars have suggested this myth actually reflects a cultural shift in Toltec civilization. During the first hundred years of their reign, the Toltecs were dominated by the theocratic culture of the Teotihuacana people that founded it. But Tula was overwhelmed by immigrants from other cultures and they brought their own ideals with them. The more warrior-like immigrants supplanted the theocratic culture and a militaristic ruling class came to power. This same myth may also have led to the initial Aztec belief that Hernán Cortés and his conquistadors 
were actually divine envoys from Quetzalcoatl returning from over the Eastern Sea. Quetzalcoatl was a prominent deity in Aztec mythology. The Aztecs raised a great temple to the god in Tenochtitlan, and also a monastery devoted to the god called Colula. Quetzalcoatl was revered as the god of learning, writing, and books. The Aztecs credited him with giving them their calendar and writing system. And Quetzalcoatl was also revered as one of the most powerful of the 13 gods of the daytime. In addition to appearing as a great feathered serpent, he was also depicted as a bearded man with a conical hat and a mask with two tubs from which he could blow great wind. Now we could keep going, of course. There are many, many stories about dragons, or rather, about mythological serpent creatures. But we've got to save something for our next live show. Meanwhile, we'd like to thank our loyal supporters on Patreon, without whose support we never would have made it to Gen Con to perform the live show in the first place. And thanks to those fans who were able to attend our show and help make it a great success. We hope to see you again, and to see all of our fans, at future conventions in future years. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.